Well, good evening to you all. As Ellen said um, right at the start of this evening, we're continuing our studies in the book of 1 Peter. So if you'd like to find that, that's going to be helpful to you. If you brought your own Bible with you, you're not familiar with the Bible structure, start at the very back with Revelation, then work your way back through Jude and 3 John, 2 John, 1 John, 2 Peter, and then 1 Peter. Or if you've got a church Bible, page 1217. We'll come to um, the passage for tonight very shortly, but before we do that, just a quick recap on what we said a couple of weeks ago by way of introduction to the book. So the book is written by Peter, who was one of the original apostles of Jesus Christ, uh, one of the inner circle, in fact, uh, with some help from a guy called Silas or Silvanus that we'll hear more about towards the end of the series. It was written to Christians in modern-day Turkey. Um, so that kind of block of shapes towards the um, right and top of the map, it's kind of mid, mid and northern Turkey were the recipients of the letter. And the occasion was roughly AD 64, and Peter was writing from Rome, and things were hotting up for Christians at that time. Persecution was already present, but it was about to get even more difficult. And Peter wrote this letter because he wanted to encourage the believers in all the various churches throughout northern Turkey, as we know it, to stand fast in the grace of God, especially in view of the difficult times that were coming, to, to hang on in there, to stand fast, to stay faithful to God. And then we looked at the first couple of verses in the letter, and in particular, this phrase, to God's elect chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. And we saw how right at the very start, Peter invoked all three members of the Trinity um, by way of introduction and how we saw how these words would encourage them in their task of standing fast in the days ahead. If you want the detail behind that, and if you want to catch up with any of our messages, morning or evening, then you can find them on our church website. So, letters. We don't write letters so much, do we, nowadays? Um, some of us may not write letters at all. We're more of an email culture or even other things. Um, but there's a certain format that we follow when we write an email. So um, the email generates for us certain information. It tells us um, who sent the email. It tells us who the email was sent to and even gives us the date and time stamp when the email was sent. We don't have to think about those things. But then we tailor the email ourselves. We add a subject. If we're good email writers, always have a subject, uh, a greeting maybe, um, the content, why we're writing in the first place, and maybe some kind of farewell or just we write our name or just maybe an initial um, because the recipient knows who's writing the letter. This is a kind of standard format that we, we don't even think about. We just take it for granted. And in New Testament times, 
it was no different. There was a certain format to letters, and in particular to Christian letters, there was an adaptation of that standard format. So in broad terms, um, the first bit of the letter contained the opening and described who the letter was from, who it was to, and some kind of greeting, and we saw that in the first few verses of 1 Peter. Then uh, thanksgiving or blessing will come on to shortly. Then there's the body of the, the letter, kind of main meat of it, if you like, and then it finishes up with various things by way of conclusion. So we've done those, the first three bullet points of the opening of Peter's letter. And in the weeks to come, we're going to be looking at the body and ultimately the conclusion. But tonight, we're focused on the thanksgiving or blessing bit of the letter. And Paul opened to Paul. I'm going to, I keep saying, thinking Paul, knowing it's Peter. Peter begins this section, this thanksgiving or blessing section, with the phrase, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he want to praise God? Why, what, what's he going to praise and bless God for? Well, we're going to see over the course of this evening that his theme, his theme is the great salvation, the great salvation that we share. He's going to talk about the author of salvation and the gift of salvation. That's our first section. Then he's going to talk about the recipients of the salvation, those he's writing to and how they've responded to the gospel message And then finally, we're going to look at the messengers of salvation and their own searching into the the actual meaning of the message. So that's where we're going tonight. Are you ready? Man, are you saved? Asked the Glasgow preacher, John Harper, of a fellow Scot as they both struggled in the sub-zero water, holding onto pieces of wreck of the Titanic. No, I'm not, came the reply. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, urged Harper. The waves took the preacher away, but a little later he was washed back alongside his companion. Are you saved now? He persisted. No, I can't honestly say that I am. Once more, Harper repeated the scripture sentence. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then losing his hold, he sank. As the young Scot later told a meeting in Hamilton, Canada, and there alone in the night and with two miles of water under me, I believed. I am John Harper's last convert. The word and the theme of salvation, I suspect, are so familiar to us that sometimes we're in danger of losing the wonder of it, losing the wonder of this salvation that we have. It's called salvation or rescue because we are in genuine peril. Otherwise, the New Testament writers and Jesus himself would have chosen a different word. But it's called salvation, it's called rescue, because we are in genuine peril. And what Peter says at the start of this letter is that God, in his great mercy, has provided a way of escape from that peril. So first of all, if you're looking at the passage, I encourage you to do so. 
verses 3 to 5, the author of, of salvation and his gift. In his great mercy, he, that is God, has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So the Bible tells us in other places that before we were saved, we were dead, spiritually speaking, dead in our transgressions and sins, and by nature, as Paul puts it in one place, deserving of wrath. We were cut off from God, cut off from God's life. But in God's great mercy, and through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, which we looked at a fortnight ago, those who've put their trust in Christ have been born again into God's family and given new life. Now, if all goes well for a newborn baby, then certain things will follow. So the baby will be born into a family with a mother and father, maybe siblings and aunts and uncles. They'll be born into a home, which all being well provides safety and security and shelter. They'll be born into a nation with all of the rights and privileges and problems that come with that. They'll be born into a community. They'll be born into a tradition and more. And for a new son or daughter of God, certain things follow. When we're born again into God's family, certain things follow. And specifically in these verses, Peter says that he or she is born into two things. So first of all, they are born into a living hope. A living hope. And each time we come across this word in, in the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament, Testament, we need to remind ourselves that hope doesn't mean well, I hope so. I kind of wish, hope that it's going to happen. But it's a, it's a certain confident expectation that something is going to take place. And in particular here, it's a confident expectation of eternal life with Christ because Christ is alive. So our hope is in a person and our hope is a person. Writing to Timothy, Paul begins his first letter with the words, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Saviour and Christ Jesus our hope. So Jesus is our hope and Jesus is alive. So Jesus is our living hope. And we are born into him. And what does that mean? Well, it means we are we're united with him. We are... Um, spiritually connected to him, spiritually connected to his life. Or as Paul is fond of saying in uh, many of his letters, we are in Christ. And I think probably the, the clearest uh, analogy of that in the New Testament is the one that Jesus himself gave in John 15 of the vine and how the branches draw life from the vine. As long as the branches are attached to the vine, they share in the life of the vine. Maybe if he was alive today, Jesus would have used the same analogy. But I wonder if he would have gone somewhere different with it. Maybe he would have said, for example, that unless we're connected to the grid, then there's no power, there's no energy there. Pull the plug out. 
and there's nothing but put the plug in and all of the resources of the national grid in a safe and controlled way are available to you. That's what it means to be in Christ, to be connected to his life, to his power. And in God's great mercy, Peter says, we've been born again into Jesus, our living hope. But then he says we're born into a safe inheritance. So because we're born into Jesus, we get to share in his last will and testament. And Peter uses three words, all with different shades of meaning, but which kind of taken together carry this sense of um, that this inheritance is not subject to decay, it's not going to expire, it can't be corrupted, it can't be defiled, it's not going to wither, grow dim, it's not going it, to lose its beauty or lose its glory. It's, it's going to be, at the very end, as pristine as it was right at the very start. But more than that, we're told it's kept, and it's a military word that means it's guarded or protected in heaven for you. It's guarded and protected in heaven for you. Paul is describing, done it again, Peter is describing a safe inheritance which is safer than the gold in Fort Knox. It's kept for us and we are kept for it because we are shielded by God's power, Peter says, by faith until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We have an inheritance that is kept for us and we are kept for it. We've heard stories maybe um, of people who watch on as their inheritance is lost through lack of care or reckless living or just the passage of time. Stories of people who reach an age or a condition such that they're not able to enjoy their inheritance. But that's not how it is for the believer in Jesus Christ. Heaven and earth will be ours. Glorified bodies will be ours. To live without death or mourning or crying or pain will be ours. To walk with Christ in all his glory that we've been singing about tonight will be ours. This and more is kept for us and we are kept for it. What a great gift. What a great salvation. And this is what Peter thanks God's for. And then, having done that, we move on to the next section. He praises God for his readers and hearers and how they've received this message of salvation. So, if you have the text open in front of you, we're now at verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter says, you haven't seen Jesus. You don't see him now, but you believe in him and you love him. And even though you're going through difficult times, you rejoice in what you have received from God. 
And he picks out three ways in particular that they've responded and continue to respond to God's great salvation. We're going to take them in reverse order. So first of all, you believe in him. You believe in him. And Ian Crossley, a couple of weeks ago in the morning, reminded us of Jesus' words to Thomas after his resurrection. Blessed are those who haven't seen, but have believed. Blessed are those who haven't seen and yet have believed. And the Christians that Peter is writing to are in that category. Most of them, by and large, will not have seen Jesus Christ, but they've believed, they've put their trust in him. The philosopher John Stuart Mill once said, there's no such thing as absolute certainty, but there is assurance sufficient for the purposes of human life. And he wasn't a Christian, but he could have been speaking about the Christian faith because there's no certainty in a scientific sense, but there's certainly enough to go on. Jesus isn't walking around now, but when we look at the evidence of his life and his words and his death and his resurrection and the birth of the church and ourselves today, all of this and more, the scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and more. When we look at all of this together, it's enough. It's enough to warrant belief in Jesus Christ. And that's why I guess most of us are here tonight. Even though we haven't seen him, we believe in him because there's sufficient evidence for us to put our trust in him. So you believe in him. And then secondly, you love him. You haven't seen him, but you love him. A physically blind person loves no less because they are blind. Arguably, they love more because their love is not based on physical attraction. Their love is more vulnerable because they don't have the visual cues to someone else's mood. And their love is more self-sacrificing because to love is to put someone's needs before your own. And these believers hadn't seen Jesus but they loved him and that was a cause of praise for Peter then and whenever we hear of men or women coming to faith in Christ today it's a cause of rejoicing for us too and that's the third thing that inspires Peter's gratitude to God it's the rejoicing which he understands they they are um, it's responding to in, in, in terms of their tough times. Peter was confident that their response, their positive response to the trials that they were going to was going to result in the ultimate praise, glory and honour to Jesus Christ when the final day of salvation comes in the future. So Peter's kind of looking to a salvation that's yet to come, a future salvation. But also they're rejoicing because they're receiving the end result of their faith, the salvation of their souls. In other words, they were rejoicing in the salvation that they were enjoying now, a present salvation. And as Peter has already alluded to in verse three, when he spoke about the new birth, there's also a sense in which salvation is something past. 
the late John Stott in uh, one of his books says this, I well remember as a very new Christian being introduced to what are called the three tenses of salvation. They go like this, firstly, I have been saved or freed in the past from the penalty of sin by a crucified savior. Secondly, I am being saved or freed in the present from the power of sin by a living savior. Thirdly, I shall be saved or freed in the future from the presence of sin by a coming savior. I have been saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. Again, that's worth rejoicing about, isn't it? And Peter's emphasis is on, in Greek language terms, an active choice rather than a passive feeling. So it's clearest in verse six, you greatly rejoice, but it's also clear in the Greek of verse eight, you rejoice with joy. In other words, Paul isn't, it's the third time, third and last time, Peter, Peter is giving thanks for their choice to rejoice rather than their feeling of joy. Do you understand what I'm saying? You won't always feel joyful, but you can choose to rejoice. There are always grounds for rejoicing, for praising and thanking God, for celebrating his goodness, for celebrating his faithfulness, no matter what. And Peter has heard that these believers, these scattered believers who are undergoing persecution are responding with rejoicing in their difficult circumstances and he gives thanks for it. And then there's one final element in this thanksgiving section of Peter's letter. So verse 10. The messengers of salvation and their searching. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who've preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. I was mulling these verses um, one evening uh, just as I was falling asleep and a kind of picture started to form in my mind uh, and I've made an attempt to translate it to a slide. It's not very good to be honest. Um, so those of you listening to this after the event, you're not missing much. But um, this, is, this is how it kind of came to me. Concerning this salvation, Peter blesses God for the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The Spirit of Christ, he calls him in directing our thoughts towards Jesus, the Messiah. Together, the prophets of the Old Testament and the preachers of the New Testament were the instruments of the Holy Spirit in pointing us to Jesus. They both had the same task, to point us to Jesus. Now, the Old Testament prophets didn't fully understand what exactly they were pointing people to. But they looked forwards with wonder as they, in Peter's words, carefully examined the words entrusted to them for details about the timing and circumstances of the coming of the Messiah 
and how he would suffer and the glory that would follow. You get this picture of these uh, men and women of God given these prophetic words and they're, they're just trying to understand what exactly this is all about. They're looking forward with wonder. And then we come to the New Testament believers and particularly those who preach the message um, to which Peter's recipients have responded. And these are looking backwards with wonder. So these are the people who've they've heard, they've heard the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead and, and it's clicked. They've understood. So now they're looking back at what, what, what happened and they're appreciating it and valuing it. They're looking back with wonder and so they declare it, they, they proclaim the good news. It's the same message that the Old Testament prophets proclaimed but the Old Testament prophets were pointing forwards and now the New Testament preachers are pointing back. Both pointing towards Jesus Christ. And then to cap it all, it's not just human beings wrestling with what, what is this mystery, this mystery of Christ come and dying for us. Even angels long to look into these things. And it's a present tense, isn't it? So even now they're looking down, looking down with wonder at what this is all about. This little Greek word means to stoop down and take a peek. So I don't know if this happens to you sometimes, but imagine you're, you're walking along, let's say you're going for a nice walk in the countryside, and you hear a little rustling in the tree, at the base of the tree, and you just wonder what that is. And you're a little bit nervous, so you just stoop down and take a peek, just to see if you can see what's going on inside the bushes down there. Or if you can't identify with that, most of you, I'm sure, must be able to identify with this. Take me back to, I'll take you back to your childhood. You're a child, you've been sent to bed, and the adults are downstairs, and they're having a conversation. And you really want to know what they're talking about. So you tiptoe to the landing, and you know the living room is just around the corner, and you stoop down and peek and without being seen, just try and find out what it is that's going on in the living room downstairs. That's the sense of this word in the Greek. It's stooping down to take a peek at what's going on. That's what angels are doing, trying to grasp, trying to understand the message of salvation that we have heard and many of us responded to. So, Quick recap. Peter praises the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he is the author of our great salvation, because he's given us new birth into a living hope and a safe, a safe inheritance. And then he blesses the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because his readers are the recipients of this great salvation. They've believed it, they've believed the message, they love the Saviour, they've rejoiced and are rejoicing in his salvation despite the difficult times that they're going through. And then thirdly, Peter blesses the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for the messengers of this great salvation, old and new, and even angels who marvel at the wonder of the good news. You know, our salvation is a wonderful thing but we are at risk of it becoming too familiar to us. There's an, um, an Aesop's fable, um, I don't know if you know it, where a fox meets a lion. 
first time the fox meets the lion, he's terrified. The second time the fox meets the lion, he's a little bit less nervous. And then the third time he meets the lion, he says, hey, what's up? He's all casual. And we can become like that fox. The first time we grasp the incredible wonder of the salvation that God has provided for us, it stirs us. But I wonder, do we kind of, over the passage of time, do we lose the wonder of what God has entrusted to us? So the takeaway message for all of us tonight, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, is just to remind ourselves of what a great salvation we have. And if we're in the category of those who've not yet responded to it, then tonight's an opportunity. God reaches out in his great mercy with his grace and invites anyone who's willing to believe to share in that great salvation.